You're listening to The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This audiobook is brought to you by Kriti and it's narrated by Aishwarya. Chapter 9 After two years, I remember the rest of that day and that night and the next day only as an endless drill of police and photographers and newspaper men in and out of Gatsby friend door. A rope stretched across the main gate and a policeman by it kept out the curious but a little boy soon discovered that they could enter through my yard and there was always a few of them clustered open-mouthed about the pool. Someone with a positive manner, perhaps a detective, used the expression madman as he bent over Wilson's body that afternoon and the advantageous authority of his voice set the key for the newspaper reports next morning. Most of those reports were a nightmare, circumstantial, eager and untrue. When Michael's testimony at the inquest brought to light Wilson's suspicious of his wife, I thought the whole tale would shortly be served up in racy pastures, but Catherine who might have said anything, didn't say a word. She showed a surprising amount of character about it, too looked at the corner which determined eyes under a corrected brow of hers and swore that her sister had seen Gatsby, that her sister was completely happy with her husband, that her sister had been into no mischief whatever. She convinced herself of it and cried into her handkerchief as if the very suggestion was more than she could endure. So Wilson was reduced to a man, deranged by grief in order that the case might remain in its simple form, and it rested there. But all this part of him seemed remote and unessential. I found myself on Gasby's side and alone from the moment I telephoned news of the catastrophe to Westeg village every sunrise about him and every practical question was referred to me. At first, I was surprised and confused. Then, as he lay in his house and didn't move or breathe or speak hour upon hour, it grew upon me that I was responsible because no one else was interested and interested enough. I mean, with that intense personal interest to which everyone has some vague right at the end. I called up Daisy half an hour after we found him, called her indistinctively and without hesitation, but she and Tom had gone away early that afternoon and taken baggage with them. Left no address? No. Say when they had been back? No. Any idea where they are? How can I reach them? I don't know. Can't say. I wanted to get somebody for him. I wanted to go into the room where he lay and rescue him. I'll get somebody for you, Gatsby. Don't worry. Just trust me and I'll get somebody for you. Mayor Wilson's name wasn't in the phone book. The butler gave his office address on Broadway and I called information, but by the time I heard the number, 
It was long after five and no one answered the phone. Will you ring again? I've rung three times. It's very important. Sorry, I'm afraid no one's there. I went back to the drawing room and thought for an instant that they were chance visitor, all these official people who suddenly filled it. But though they drew back the sheet and looked at Gatsby with shocked eyes, his protest continued in my brain. Look here, Holtzport, you've got to get somebody for me. You've got to try hard. I can't go through this alone. Someone started to ask me question, but I broke away and going upstairs, looked hastily through the unlocked part of his desk. He'd never told me, definitely, that his parents were dead. But there was nothing, only a picture of Dan Cody, a token of forgotten violence, starting down from the wall. Next morning, I sent the butler to New York with a letter to Ulsium, which asked for information and urged him to come out on the next train. That trick was seemed superficial when I wrote it. I was sure he start when he saw the newspaper, just as I was sure there would be fire from Daisy before noon. But neither a fire nor Mr. Wilsiam arrived. No one arrived except more policemen and photographers and newspaper men were. When the butler brought back Wilsiam answer, I began to have a feeling of defense, of scornful solitary between Gatsby and me against them all. Dear Mr. Carraway, this has been one of the most terrible shock of my life to me. I hardly can believe it that it's true at all. Such a mad act as that man did should make us all think, I cannot come down now as I am tied up in some very important business and cannot get mixed up in this thing now. If there's anything, I can do a little later and let me know in a letter by Adia. I hardly know where I am when I hear about the thing like this and I'm completely knocked down and out. Yours truly, Mayor Ulsiam, and then hasty Adenta beneath. Let me know about the funeral, etc. Do not know his family at all. When the phone rang that afternoon and long distance said Chicago was calling, I thought this would be Daisy at last. But the connection came through a man's voice, very thin and far away. This is slang speaking. Yes, the name was unfamiliar. Hello of a note, isn't it? Get my wire. There haven't been any wires. Young Park's in trouble, he said rapidly. They picked him up when he handed the bonds over the counter. They got a circular from New York giving them the number just five minutes before. What you'd know about that? Hey, you never can tell in these hick towns. Hello, I interrupted breathlessly. Look here, this isn't Mr. Gatsby. Mr. Gatsby's dead. There was a long silence on the other end of the wire followed by an explanation, then a quick swag as the connection was broken. I think it was on the third day that the telegram signed Henry C. Gatz arrived from a town in Minesto. It said only that the sender was leaving immediately 
and to postpone the funeral until he came. It was Gatsby's father, a solemn old man, very helpless and dismayed, bundled up in a long cheap ulster against the warm September day. His eyes leaked continuously with excitement, and when I took the bag and umbrella from his hand, he began to pull so insentently at his sparse grey beard that I had difficulty in getting off his hat. He was on the point of collapse, so I took him into the music room and made him sit down while I sent for something to eat. But we couldn't have to eat the glass of milk spilled from his trembling hand. I saw it in the Chicago newspaper, he said. It was all in the Chicago newspaper. I started right away. I didn't know how to reach you. His eyes, seeing nothing, moved ceaselessly about the room. It was a madman, he said. It must have been mad. Would you like some coffee? I urged him. I don't want anything. I'm all right now. Caraway? Well, I'm all right now. Where have they got Jimmy? I took him into a drawing room where his son lay and left him there. Some little boys had come up on the steps and were looking into the hall. When I told them who had arrived, they were reluctantly away. After a while, while Mr. Gads opened the door and came out, his mouth ajar, his face flushed slightly, his eyes leaking isolated and unpunctual tears. He had researched an age where death no longer has a quality of ghastly surprise and when he looked around him now for the first time and saw the height and splendor of the hall and the great room opening out from it into other rooms. His grief began to mix with the awe to pry. I helped him to a bedroom upstairs, but he took his coat and vest and told him that all arrangements had been deferred until he came. I didn't know what you want, Mr. Gatsby. Gats is my name, Mr. Gats. I thought you want to take the body west. He shook his head. Jimmy always liked it better down east. He rose up to his position in the east. Were you a friend of my boy, mister? We were close friend. He had a big future before him, you know. He was a only young man, but he had a lot of brain power here. He touched his head impressively and nodded. If he'd of life, He'd been of a great man, a man like James J. Hill. He'd of helped build up the country. That's true, I said uncomfortably. He flummed at the embroidered coverlet, trying to take it from the bed and lay down stiffly, was instantly asleep. That night, an obviously frightened person called up and demanded to know who I was before he would give his name. This is Mr. Caraway, I said. Ho, oh, he sounded relief. This is Clipspring. I was relieved too, for that seemed to promise another friend at Gradsby's grave. I didn't want it to be the papers and I draw sighting crowd, so I'd be calling up a few people myself. They were hard to find. The funeral's tomorrow, I said. Three o'clock, here at the house. I wish you'll tell anybody who'd be interested. Ho, oh, 
I will. He broke out hastily. Of course, I am not likely to see anybody. But if I do, his tone made me suspicious. Of course, you will be here there. Well, I will certainly try. What I called about is, wait a minute, I interrupted. How about saying you will come? Well, the fact is, the truth of the matter is that I am staying with some people up here in Greenwich and they rather expect me to be with them tomorrow. In fact, there is a sort of picnic or something. Of course, I will do my best to get away. I ejaculated an unrealistic hush and he must be heard me for a vent of nervousness. When I called upon about a pair of shoes I left there, I wonder if it would be too much trouble to have the butler send them on. You see, the tennis shoes and I sort of helpless without them. My address is care of BF. I didn't hear the rest of the name because I hung up the receiver. After that, I felt a certain shame for Gatsby, one gentleman to whom I telephoned implied that he had got what he deserved. However, that was my fault, for he was one of those who used to sneer most bitterly at Gatsby on the courage of Gatsby liquor and I should have known better than to call him. The morning of the funeral, I went up to New York to see Mayor Wilsium. I couldn't seem to reach him anyway. The door that I pushed open on the advice of an elevated boy was marked the Swastika Holiday Company and at first there didn't seem to be anyone inside. But when I shouted hello several times in a vein, an argument broke out behind the partition and presented a lovely Jewess appeared at an interior door and scrutinized me with a black hostile eyes. Nobody is in, she said. Mr. Ulsium gone to Chicago. The first part of this was obviously untrue for someone had began to whistle the rosary tunelessly inside. Please say that Mr. Garraway wants to see him. I can't get him back from Chicago. Can I? At this moment of voice, unmistakably, Wilsium called Stella from the other side of the door. Leave your name on the desk, she said quickly. I like to give it to him when he gets back, but I know he's there. She took a step towards me and began to slide her hands indignantly up and down her hips. You young men think you can force your way in here any time. She scolded. We are getting scattered of it. When I say he is in Chicago, he is in Chicago. I mention Gatsby. Ho! Oh, she looked at me over again. Will you just... What's your name? She vanished. In a moment, Wilsium stood solemnly in the doorway, holding out both hands. He drew me into his office, remarking in a reverent voice that it was a sad time for all of us and offered me a cigarette. My memory goes back to when I first meet him, he said. A young major, just out of the army and cover overed with medals he got in the war. 
he was so hot he had to keep on wearing his uniform because he couldn't buy some regular clothes first time i saw him was when he came into widmer pool pond at 43rd street and asked for a job he hadn't eat anything for a couple of days come on have some lunch with me i said he ate more than 4 dollars worth of money in half an hour did you start him in business i inquired start him i made him ho oh, i raised him out of nothing right after the gutter i saw right away he was fine appearing gentlemanly young man and when he told me he was at oxford i knew i gonna use him good i got him to join the american legion and he used to stand high there right off he did some work for a client of mine up to albany we were so thick like then in everything he held up two balas fingers always together i wondered if this partnership has included the world series transaction in 1919 now he's dead i said after a moment you were his close friend so i know you'll want to come to his funeral this afternoon i'd like to come well come then the air in his nostril quivered slightly and as he shook his head his eyes filled with tears i can't do it i can't get mixed up in it he said there's nothing to get mixed up in it's all over now when a man gets killed i never like to get mixed up in it in any way of it i keep out when i was a young man it was different if a friend of mine died no matter how i stuck with them to the end you may think that sentimental but i mean it to be the bitter end i saw that for some reason of his own he was determined not to come so i stood up are you a college man he inquired suddenly for a moment i thought he was going to suggest a ganagation but he only nodded and shook my hand let's learn to show our friendship for a man when he's alive and not after he's dead he suggested after that my own rule is to let everything alone when i left his office the sky had turned dark and i go back to westgate in a drizzle after changing my clothes i went next door and found mr gats walking up and down excitedly in the hall his pride in his son and his son's possession was continually increasing and now he had something to show me jimmy sent me this picture he took out his wallet with trembling fingers look here it was a photograph of the house cracked in the corners and dirty with many hands he pointed out every detail to me eagerly look there and then sought administration from my eyes he had shown it so often that i think it was more real to him now that the house itself jimmy sent it to me i think it's very pretty picture it shows up well very well have you seen him lately he come out to see me 2 years ago and bought me the house i live in now of course we broke up when we ran off from home 
but i see now there was a reason for it he knew he had a big future in front of him and ever since he made a success he was very generous with me he seemed reluctant to put away the picture held it for another minute lingeringly before my eyes then he returned the wallet and pulled from his pocket a ragged old copy of a book called Hopalang Cassidy look here this is a book he had when he was a boy it just shows you he opened it at a back cover and turned it around for me to see on the last fly leaf was printed the word schedule and the date september 12 1906 and underneath rise from bed 6 a.m. dumbbell exercise and wall scaling 6:15 to 6:30 a.m. study electricity etc. 7:15 to 8:15 a.m. work 8:30 to 4:30 p.m. baseball and sports 4:30 and 5 p.m. practice allocation poise and how to attain it 5 to 6 p.m. study needed invention 7 to 9 a.m. general results no wasting time at shafters or a name indesperable no more smoking or chewing bath every other day read one improving book or magazine per week save 5 rupees and 3 rupees per week be better to parents i came across this book by accident said the old man i just show you don't it it just shows you jimmy was bought to get ahead he always had some resolve like this or something do you notice what he got about improving his mind he was always great for that he told me i'd like a hard once and beat him for it he was reluctant to close the book reading each item around and then looking eagerly at me i think he rather expected me to copy down the list for my own use a little before 3 the lutheran minister arrived from flushing and i began to look involuntarily out the windows for other cars so did the gatsby father and as the time passed and the servants came in and stood waiting in the hall his eyes began to blink anxiously and has spark of the rain in a worried uncertain way the minister glanced several time at his watch so i took him aside and asked him to wait for half an hour but it wasn't any use nobody came about 5 o'clock a procession of three cars reached the cemetery and stopped in a thick trestle beside the gate first a motor hairs horribly black and wet then mr gats and the minister and me in a limones and a little later four or five servants and the postman from westeg in gatsby station wagon all went to the skin as we started through the gate into the cemetery i heard a car stop and then sound of someone splashing after us over the soggy ground i looked around it was the man with owl-eyed glass whom i have found marveling over gatsby book in a library 
one night three months before. I'd never seen him since then. I don't know how he knew about the funeral or even his name. The rain poured down his thick glasses and he took them off and wiped them to see the protecting canvas unroll from Gatsby grave. I tried to think about Gatsby then for a minute, but he was already too far and I could only remember without resentment that Daisy hadn't sent a message or a flower. Dimly, I heard someone murmur, Blessed are the dead that the rain falls on. And then the owl-eyed man said, Amen to that in a brave voice. We strangled down quickly through the rain to the cars. Owl-eyed spoke to me by the gate. I couldn't get to the house, he remarked. Neither could anybody else. Go on, he started. Why, my God, they used to go there by the hundreds. He took off his glasses and wiped them again, outside and in. The poor son of a bitch, he said. One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would greater in the old dim Union State at 6 o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends already caught up into their own holiday gates to bind them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of a girl returning from Miss, this or that, and the chatter of frozen breath and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of all acquaintances and the matching of invitations. Are you going to the Oddways? The Hersey's, the Scrubbers, and the long green ticket clasped tight in a gloved hands. And at last, the Murphy yellow cars of the Chicago, Milkworths, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerfully at Christmas itself on a track beside the gate. When we pulled out into a winter nights and the real snow, our snow began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wilson station moved by a sharp wild breeze came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner to the cold vestibules, unutterly aware of an identity with this country for one strange hour, before we melted indistinguishly into it again. That's my mild west, not the wheat or the praises or the lost Sweden town, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and the sail bells in the frosty dark and the shadow of hollow breaths thrown by lightened windows on the snow. I am a part of that, a little, solemn with the field of those long winters, a little compliment from growing up in a caraway house in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family names. I see now that this has been a story of West after all, Tom and Gatsby, Daisy, Jordan and I were all Westerners and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common which made us subtle, unadaptable to Eastern life. 
even when the east excites me the most even when i was most keenly aware of its superiority to the bold sprawling swollen towns beyond the ohio with their interminable inquisitions which spares only the children and the very old even then it had always for me a quality of distortion west egg especially still figures in my more fantastic dream i see it as a night scene by el grior a hundred houses at once conventional and gorgeous crouching under a sullen overhanging sky and a lustrous moon in the foreground four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sideways with a stretcher on which lies the drunken woman in a white evening dress her hand which dangles over the side sparkle cold with jewels gravely the men turn into at the house the wrong house but no one knows the women's name and no one cares after gatsby's death the east was haunted for me like that distorted beyond my eyes power of correction so when the blue smoke of brittle leaf was in the air and wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line i decided to come back home there was one thing to be done before i left an awkward unpleasant thing that perhaps had been better have been left alone but i wanted to leave things in order and not just trust that obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuse away i saw jordan baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together and what had happened afterwards to me and she lay perfectly still listening in a big chair she was dressed to play golf and i remember thinking she looked like a good illustration her chin raised a little jointly her hair the color of an autumn leaf her face the same brown tint as the fingerless claw of her knee when i had finished she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man i doubted that though they were several she could have married at a nod of her head but i pretended to be surprised for just a minute i wondered if i wasn't making a mistake then i thought it all over again quickly and got up to say goodbye nevertheless you didn't throw me over said jordan suddenly you threw me over on the telephone i didn't give a damn about it but it was a new expression for me and i felt a little dizzy for a while we shook hands ho oh, do you remember she added a conversation we had once about driving a car why not exactly you said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver well i met another bad driver didn't i i meant it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess i thought you were rather an honest straightforward person i thought it was your secret pride i'm 30 i said i'm 5 year too old to lie to myself and call it honor she didn't answer angry and half in love with her and tremendously sorry i turned away 
One afternoon late in October, I saw Tom Buchanan. He was walking ahead of me along Fifth Avenue in his alert, aggressive way, his hand out of little from his body as if to fight off interference, his head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to its restless eye. Just as I slowed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewelry store. Suddenly, he saw me and walked back, holding out his hand. What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? Yes. You know what I think of you? You're crazy, Nick, he said quickly. Crazy as hell. I don't know. What's the matter with you? Tom, I inquired. What do you think you should say to Wilson that afternoon? He started at me with a word and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arms. I told him the truth, he said. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave. And when I sent down word that they weren't in, he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. His hands was on reservoir in his pocket every minute he was in the house. He broke off definitely. What if I did tell him? That fellow had it coming to me. He threw dust into your eyes just like he did in Daisy's, but he was a tough one. He ran over Merrill like you would run over a dog and never even stopped his car. There was nothing I could say except the one utterable fact that it wasn't there. And if you think I didn't have my share of suffering, look here, when I went to give up the flat and saw the damn box of dog biscuits, Sitting there on a sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy, this smashed up thing and creature and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with them. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as thought I was talking to a child. Then he went into a jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or perhaps only a pair of cut buttons rid of my provincial squeaking forever. Gatsby House was still empty. When I left, the grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drew Daisy and Gatsby over to the East Egg the night of the accident and perhaps he had made a story about it all of his own. I didn't want to hear it 
and I avoided him when I got off the train. I spend my Saturday nights in New York because those gleaming, dazzling particles of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter, faint and incessant, from his garden and the cars going up and down his drive. One night, I did hear a material car there and saw its light stop at the front step, but I didn't investigate. Probably, it was some final guest who had been away at the end of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to a grocer, I went over and looked at that huge incoherent failure of a house once more. On a white steps on an obscure world, scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick, stood out clearly in a moonlight and I erased it, drawing my shoes raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rises higher, the inessential house began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailor's eye, a fresh, green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby House, had once pandered in whisper to the last and greatest of all human dreams for a transistory-enhanced moment which made man must held his breath in the presence of his continent compelled into an aesthetic complication he neither understood nor desired face to face for a last time in history with something commensier to its capacity of wonder. And as I sat there brooding an old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of a daisy dog. He had come a long way to his blue lawn and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him. Somewhere, back in that vast obscurity, beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the organistic future, that year by year recedes before us. It eludes us then, but that's not a matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms further, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, born back ceaselessly into the past.